Blog Talk Radio. From Washington, D.C., this is In My Opinion with Kara Live. And the In My Opinion team, Stephen Reese, Taquan Etheridge, Brandon Andrews, Trelane Patrick, and Terry Jones. Our mission is to educate by providing stimulating conversations. We may have a difference of opinion, but we are united for change. Listen to the show on the go by downloading from iTunes. Also, like us on Facebook at In My Opinion TV. Welcome to In My Opinion. This is Kara Live, and I'm co-hosting tonight with Stephen Reese. Please feel free to submit your questions on our chat line or Twitter uh, with hashtag InMyOpinionTV, or join the discussion or ask a question by calling 347-327-9883. Uh, so tonight's topic is the politics of filmmaking. Whether it's projected in theaters, watched on television, viewed on a DVD, or streamed over the Internet, a film can entertain, educate, enlighten, inspire, and influence how we understand and act in the world. Tonight's guests are filmmakers Regina Griffin and Ryan Walker. Uh, Regina Griffin is a TV executive, filmmaker. She's the director of a documentary titled Brown Babies. And Ryan Walker is the co-founder of Raven Films. He produced uh, Confessions of a Call Girl, starring Lynn Whitfield, Clifton Powell. He's also co-produced a film called Blood of a Champion and his latest uh, work in a short film called The Guardian. So, again, I want to welcome our guests uh, to In My Opinion. Um, Regina and Ryan, um, hello, how are you? Hi, how are you? Hello, how are you? I'm great. Great. So I wanted to start the conversation. Um, I wanted to ask the both of you, and we will start with um, Regina first. What inspired you to become a filmmaker, and tell us about your film projects? Sure. Well, my background is in TV news, and... You know, I've spent most of my career, you know, telling news stories and, you know, sometimes the stories, you know, they're about a minute long, you, you, they come and they go. And I really got to a point in my career where I wanted to make a difference and I stumbled upon a story that, you know, just really, in fact, really fascinated me. It was a, an important part of our history that I didn't know anything about and most people who I, you know, I asked about didn't know anything about. And it just struck me that it was a story that needed to be told and um, thought that it would challenge me and inspire me to do something other than, you know, the fires and murders and press conferences of, you know, daily news. And so my documentary is called Brown Babies, and it's about what happened to the children who were born in Germany right after World War II. Their mothers were white German women, and their fathers were black American servicemen, and what struck me is that these children were sort of caught between uh, enemy, warring enemy countries, the U.S. and Germany, um, prejudiced, racist countries, Germany and the United States in that time of, you know, post-war, um, 1940s, 1950s of uh, post, uh, excuse me, Jim Crow America and Nazi Germany, and just how these children were sort of, um, they didn't belong to anybody. And to tell their story, um, it just really felt, I really, really felt compelled to tell what happened to these children because it was just absolutely remarkable the things that they went through you would just it just brings you to tears 
And um, yeah, it's actually a great story. I've I've seen your film. Um, also, I wanted to ask Ryan the same question: um, What inspired you to become a filmmaker? And tell us about your project. Uh, I decided to become a filmmaker actually by default. My uh, best friend and college roommate at the time, he wrote a script in school, and, and, and he was a so he was a pre-law major, and I was a psychology criminal justice uh, double major. And he wrote this script. And we figured we could sell it, make some money off of it, and you know just retire rich, you know, off the sale of a screenplay. Clearly. No, we didn't know we were. We, we didn't realize then how everything worked. So, we wrote the. He wrote this script. I tried to sell it. Nobody bought it. So essentially, we're like, well, we can just make it ourselves. And that's how I got involved in film. I kind of fell into it. And then once I fell into it and, and decided that okay, this is something that I'm involved in and something that I'm going to take seriously and, and participate in. You know, I decided to do more research about the business aspect of it, how everything works, and then decided that this might be something for me because I enjoy, as a film producer, I enjoy the ability to take an idea and then make a reality out of it. So my first project from a feature film standpoint was Blood of a Champion, then it was Confessions of a Call Girl, then I did Jury of Our Peers, and then I did a uh, a documentary on the Black Mafia family, and now I'm doing a documentary um, on electronic dance music called The Drop. So, uh, and, you know, busy. Yeah, it sounds like you're very busy. <laughs> yeah, so, then I did the um, short film. Then I did that short film, The Guardian, too. Um, and is the Guardian? Um, are you proposing it to be a feature film at some point in time, or is it is this going to you state it as a slate it as a short film? Well, no, or The Guardian is a short film, and I actually I never I've never that was my first and only short form project. So I liked it. I liked the writer, um, and I actually did the, the The Guardian because I wanted to go into short format work, specifically web series and web and web internet based content. So I wanted to have some experience in it because I had only done feature work. I had never I had never done a short before. So like most directors or early filmmakers, they do a short first and then they do a feature. Well I just kinda jumped right into the feature world of it all. Oh so, okay. Uh, so that was my short that was my first short film project ever. So I did it more as a, as a test to see if it's something I was interested in doing, and uh, it, it turned out. Uh, it, I mean, obviously the filmmaker I, I partnered with, he was a great filmmaker, um, and it turned out to be something that you know I was proud of. I liked. People seemed to like it. It's screening in the um, Orlando Film Festival this October, so it's, okay. it's going pretty good. Um, before I open the line for Stephen Reese. Um, there appears to be a call on the line. I'm not sure if they have a question or not, but I'm going. There's a caller with a 704 area code. So if you have a question or a comment, please feel free to uh, address, uh, enter now. Hello, 704. Oh, hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, hi. This is Benita. I'm from Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. Yay. Hello, how are you? <laughs> Great, how are you? I have, have never been on one of these discussions. So I wasn't sure if I was muted or not. So. You were initially muted, but if you have a question, I can put you back on mute if you don't have a question or comment, but um, I oh. said that you had a comment or question. Oh, no. Uh, no, I, it's a pleasure to um, you know listen to both of the veterans and um, learn. So, uh, no, I'm I'm just enjoying the conversation. Okay, great. So, remain holding. Um, Stephen Reese, it's open for you. Hey, Cara. Hey, Regina. Hey. Hey, Hi. I have, a question. I have a question for Regina. Uh, you mentioned that you started your career uh, primarily focused on the one-minute format that's uh, indicative of newscasts. How can 
or how do you just oppose that against making a feature film? And also, how do you reconcile that with our current fascination with sound bites and 140 characters messages that are made via Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a combination of things because I, I still am in news. I mean, that's what I do every day. And, you know, we have to tell stories in a short period of time. Um, that's just the new the news business. So I really felt free when I decided I was going to make this documentary. You know, I didn't have those restraints. It was let me make this film and let me tell the story in the best way that I know how and give it the time that it deserves. Um, because I didn't have those restrictions. So that was one of my frustrations as a news producer, um, not feeling that I really could delve into topics um, fully. A lot of things are just very complex. And so um, it was easy for me because it was just it was freeing. So you, you prefer the, the longer format as opposed to the, short attention getting sound bite or I guess the, the flash and the pain that's available on Twitter? Well, I mean, I, I think there's a a place for both. Um, mm. And because of the type of story that I told, I really wanted to let it breathe. And I wanted to not only give the history behind the story of, you know, men who were um, – who were serving in a segregated, not only the men who were serving in a segregated um, military, I wanted to talk about the mothers, the German mothers who were having children who didn't really have an opportunity to raise those children, and I wanted to hear from the the brown babies who are now in their 60s. So, I mean, that's not something that you really, I mean, you can tell in a minute, but to really, really understand the context of the history and the the very difficult and painful choices um, both parents had to make, and then to find out, you know, what happened to these children 60 years later. I mean, to really, really understand that and to really tell that story, you know, I wanted to, I wanted you to feel feel what was going on and have that emotion as well as tell that history lesson and and in that case it it took it took time um and i as a former well as a news producer i just really enjoyed the opportunity to let that breathe and to um fully tell the story in the way that i best saw fit I mean, but I do realize that in today, I mean, I I tweet and I still tell news stories in 30 seconds or a minute as well. But I think, you know, there are things that just deserve a fuller, more complex um, story. Yes. Very good. And I also have a question for Ryan. I'm I'm a very inquisitive person, so be prepared for a lot of questions. No, it's fine. Pull my, my coattails in a minute. Ryan, um, with your various uh, projects, how important is societal good in your formula? I know it's important to have a money-making project or have a a thought-provoking project. How important is is it that your projects add to the common conscience or add to to the side of quote-unquote good? add to the side of good. Yeah. You know, I think that outside of clearly moral issues, right, that good and bad is relative. So I think that a person can learn, I think a person can can take an experience whether it be a negative experience or a good experience, and apply a lesson to that from their lives, right? So I look at my first criteria. You know, there are certain things that I'm just not going to put in the movie, right? But beyond that, I look for entertaining value first because it is the entertainment business, not the, like, charity. Like, I don't – I'm not Red Cross, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. So – 
my my first job is to entertain, and I try to entertain with a with a lesson if it's in there, but not an over the head beat you over the top lesson of you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this. You know, I like to think that people are are smart enough or engaged enough to evaluate on their own what they want to take away from the project. Okay. So your primary focus is is this story entertaining? Right. My, 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 the if, first if, thing I'm going to look at is entertaining first, right? So here's a good example. So a project that my partner just wrote is called um, Under the Brooklyn Bridge, right? So I read the script. It's about two brothers that um, run an illegal gambling operation out of the laundromat on the Lower East Side in New York, right? The script mm-hmm. is very entertaining. I love it to death. But I had a problem with the script because all the prostitutes in the script were black women, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I immediately said, that's not going to work for me personally. There will be no black women prostitutes in any movies I make. Mm-hmm. So we changed it. But had the script have not have been entertaining, I never would have even took the next step towards where do I stand with this script morally because I'm not going to produce any content that's not entertaining. Mm-hmm. But you do believe that it can be both. It can be entertaining and thought-provoking. It can also, I guess this would be the third, and it can also, I guess, always say promote the good because it's, there are a lot of films out there that, in my opinion, may not have much societal value, but they're very entertaining, and it's always interesting to talk to filmmakers to see what their formula is before they decide to take on a project. Oh, yeah, that, that's my formula. I want to look at is it entertaining first, because if it's not entertaining, no matter how good it is, like I don't, I don't think people are going to be interested. You know, every story, I mean, you know, every story has a good and bad dynamic to it. If you don't have if you don't have the yin and yang of a story, it's not interesting to me. Okay. That's a good segue. You were talking about um, race for a second, and um, I was when when I was putting together this this particular show, I was thinking about, and I don't, and I don't think anybody ever really notices the casting of certain films, and there was a big ado about um, black actors being cast with Latina actresses. And mm-hmm. the reason and the reason being um uh, basically what sells uh, or who would actually come to because if they would let's say for instance, um I can't remember the film, it was Denzel Washington with um Eva Mendez. Thank you. <laughs> and um um, I remember when the film first came out or reading something regarding um, or a big debate on if they would have had a uh, black actress as the lead actress opposite of him. And because it was her, and I think there was a, uh, I think his partner was white. So since they had that dynamic, then it would attract more audiences versus having a, a black wife. I think the same thing with um uh, hitch with um, Will Smith, same same concept. There's actually a couple of films out there that, that. So I was wondering what the guests um, think of, or what their thoughts are on um, race as it relates to making their films. Um, so, well, out of time, you know, he did have some was the was in that film also. I mean, oh, okay. Yeah, but but um for so this same film under the Brooklyn Bridge, the the crime lord that they work for is a Latino dude, and and the and the main character is a the main female character is a Latino woman, right? Okay. And that's because that's how the story is. So I like to keep my scripts to to real, like is it a real situation? Is it a real story? Then let's keep it and make it authentic. So I don't think that you should. I don't think that we as filmmakers should force 
should force a, should force a position just because we want to make it a racial issue, and and at at the at the risk of losing the authenticity of the story. Right. Is it not and possible? I'm sorry, Car. Is it not no, possible? No, is it not possible to develop a story that that transcends? Racial categories, or, or that even transcends transcends nationality or ethnicity. I, and I'm thinking of Schindler's List. I'm not Jewish, but that film touched me because it was primarily concerned with the human condition. And I'm wondering, is it more important that the film is true to to those things that are essential to our Existence, or is it more important to have it phenotypically representative of the diversity that we see? Right. Schindler's List dealt with the human condition. Very true. But it wouldn't have been authentic had we forced black people in a Jewish Holocaust story. Right. It still would have dealt with the human condition, but you would have looked at it like, well, this isn't authentic. Right. And uh, let's segue to because uh, Regina's film is a documentary, which of mm-hmm. course is called Brown Babies. And I'm wondering, um, uh, first of all, regarding financing or um, obtaining financing for that type of documentary, was that hard, or how were you able to to pitch the idea or to get it across before you could even get the film made? Well, for me, this was more of a, it was not only business, but it was more It was more personal, at least at the very beginning. It has now become more business-oriented. But in making the film, I was at a point in my life where I wanted to do something meaningful. And I pitched this to a couple of different um, networks and got no response. No one was interested in doing it. And I decided to do it myself. And it was just really, it was really a calling, and and I and I feel this way now. I mean, I felt I feel like this is what I was, this is part of my mission to make this film. It's like in my spirit and in my soul, and um, I don't know that I would do this again because you know I I financed everything. I did as much work as I could myself and put, you know, my heart and soul and, you know, bank account in into making this film. I think I'm a little different, but it was such a passion project to me. I just felt like I needed to do it. Regina, are there any uh, stories in in the Brown Baby story that is relevant for today's audience? I know it's a historical piece, but what could or what can someone today take from that story? Well, a couple of things, and thank you for asking that question. I mean, I think, you know, when you when you look at, like, for instance, Black History Month or Black History, we sort of regurgitate sort of some of the same history lessons that, um, you know, we we hear all the time. And here's a story that just few people know about, and I think that's just very important. It's not black history. It's not American history. It's world history. And, you know, we have black children who were just pr- simply abandoned and left to die in orphanages, and I think the world should know that, number one. Um, every time there is a war in this country, wherever there are American soldiers abroad, there are children somewhere. And... um you know, we've been in in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last 10 years. Um, there could be children there, too. I just feel like it's an important story about war and what happens to children who are the products of the war, of war, various wars, and people should be aware of that. Um, so I think it's relevant even today. So it's, in your opinion, it's, it's another form of... Uh collateral damage from absolutely. war. Absolutely. Absolutely. Unknown collateral damage of war. Absolutely. Very 
very interesting. Doctor, and I know you said that you had an, uh, an issue with uh, getting attention for your film and, and financing it yourself. Can you tell us, and both of you, actually, how film festivals played a part in your film success? And we can start with Regina. Yeah, it was it was critical for me because I really I really didn't know what I was doing. When I decided to make this movie, like I said, it was very personal for me and I wanted to do something and I wanted to do something meaningful with my life and I wanted to feel fulfilled. And my goal was just to see if I could do this. I didn't want to um not 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 finish the movie. And if I just had a DVD in my living room, I would I would have been fine with that. But I decided to enter film festivals, and I I was just so fortunate that the very first film festival I entered, the American Black Film Festival, I won, and that gave me the exposure that that I needed. I think the same question applies to you, Ryan. For uh, well. Each, uh, well, film festivals have helped, the, specifically the American Black Film Festival, that's helped me out a lot. Of, that's helped me out a lot in my career. Every film I've done is screened at that festival. And I've, I've secured distribution for my film through that, for every film I've made because of that festival. So it's a platform where, you know, distributors are looking for content and they come and they, if they like your, if they like your movie, you know, you can work out a deal. But in regards to getting financing for them, financing is never an easy thing to secure, especially for documentaries, which is why I really don't like making them. But um, if if you like a content and you see an audience, you know, documentaries are passion projects. So you just have to approach the financing and identify people who are passionate about that subject matter. And eventually you'll get it. You know, it's just one of those things. It just, it's a, the financing process is always long and it's always, you know, disappointing and rewarding at the same time. Ryan, what what role does passion play in you deciding on whether or not to take on a project? I heard Regina, and it seems as though it was a driving force with her that she felt that she would quote-unquote, self-actualized by by making this project. It was a mission of hers. And I was wondering if you had that same type of motivation or was there a different motivation that propelled you throughout your project? Um, my passion isn't project-specific at this point in my life. I'm passionate about the overall process of it. So I get excited about a person who has wrote this script. They had this dream about, hey, I got this dream about this thing I want to do. I'm not really sure what it is, but I need help making this dream come true. And my job as a film producer is to essentially take that person's idea or that dream and make it a reality. So my passion is seeing that person's dream or vision or idea become a tangible thing for them to share with the world. So it's not project-specific for me. It's the overall process that I'm passionate about. I can barely understand the question. It sounds a little distorted. Yeah, it was distorted on this end as well. Could you repeat the question? It was distorted on this end as well. Oh, it's still What I was going to say is, yeah, I was going to play a clip. We were talking about financing earlier, and I I have like a a, a almost four-minute clip. Um, Uh, from Bloomberg TV, from the Bible, uh, regarding the 
many are saying to Spike Lee as they call on the same director to end his new Kickstarter campaign. Now, if you don't know, Kickstarter is a website whoa, whoa, that helps. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hey, we're going to go there. Why are you open like that? <laughs> Why are you open like that? Because we, we, we're all about controversy here. We're going to let you answer in a second. But i got to tell what people people want the Kickstarter thing is. It's a website. Why would you open like that? That helps artists fund their projects using crowdsourcing. Hello? Here's how it works. You make your pitch in a video. You upload it. You hope the idea kicks off. It's mostly for up-and-coming novices. So what is an Oscar-nominated director like Spike Lee doing on this set? We thought we'd ask him in person. Well, I would like to refute your opening. Just tell me. I mean, you, you've got a lot of money. You don't need to do this. Why would you go to Kickstarter? I think it's interesting. First of all, first of all, you don't know how much money I have. You've never seen me before. You've never seen me before in your life. So if you assume what my what my financial state is, that's wrong. Second of all, I've been doing Kickstarter before there was Kickstarter. So you know how Let me, can I finish? Can I finish, please? Only have 60 minutes, so I would like to get my voice up. I've been doing Kickstarter before there was Kickstarter. That's how I raised my my first one. She's gonna have it. So why go to Kickstarter then? If because you know how to raise because, money, why because, you go there? Because crowdfunding is the new wave to get financing. Crowdfunding, okay. where you go directly to your base, directly to the people who love. She's gonna have it. School days, do the right thing. Malcolm X. Uh, he got game. Summer of Sam, 20th Hour, Inside Man, Kings of Comedy, Kobe doing work. Mm -hmm. That's a body of work that's been amassed over three decades. And I'm going directly to the people. Okay, so no, 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 no. I want to know what's different about then and now. So you've done it before. What's different is that the whole Hollywood game has changed. Now studios only want to make films that can open on the same day globally to make trillions of dollars. This Which, film, by the way, aren't doing well this year, exactly. are they? That's the same thing why Spielberg and George Lucas themselves, you might say, created the blockbuster phenomenon, said that this path of tentpoles is going to collapse the whole Hollywood industry. And that's not me. That's Spielberg and Lucas are saying that. Mm -hmm. so, so, this this is so therefore, when I want to do my new film coming out, Thanksgiving week is all boy. That's a studio film. Josh Brolin and Sam Jackson. This is a film that is an independent film. I'm an independent filmmaker. So I'm appealing to my so what people. Did you I'm, do? I'm going appealing to my base okay. on Kickstarter.com <laughs> to pledge as little as five dollars to help me get hey, you're my new there, right? To get my new film made. You Read. need one and a quarter million? Yes. And you're you're a third of the way there. We're gonna make it. Much to your chagrin, we will make it, people. Hey, so we're talking about technology. We're talking about social media. When I was trying to raise yes. $175,000, but she's gonna have it way back in 1985, where we had to keep our save with empty soda cans and bottles for nickel deposit. There was no internet. And by the way, you made seven million dollars on that film. Yes, that, was, that, was, that, that was, was a home run. That's what that was. Nineteen eighty-six. That world is gone. It's gone. Steven Steven Soderbergh, who pledged ten thousand dollars right. to this project, he said he's not going to work in Hollywood anymore. He's saying he's just going to do work doing cable movies. The whole industry has changed. Are we? So. It's so hello. So there's a. One of you guys were talking about how hard it is to get financing, and I'm assuming that prior to um, Kickstarter, you had to do your own type of fundraising. Give us an idea, and I can't remember if it was Regina or um, uh, Ryan, but give us an idea of, of what you do now to do fundraising. And I'm sure that after... Um, Kickstarter has now got a really boost by Spike Lee, for those who didn't know about it um, prior to that. Um, but what what type of financing and what type of fundraising you did in order to um, finance your film? Well, for me, um, I like I said, I financed the film myself, and I spent I used most of 
funds for myself, and I got a couple of other people to um, invest. But I'm actually using crowdsourcing now to distribute my film, so that's where I've had to sort of resort to um, that same concept um, to get my film played in in theaters because it's just a, it's a small documentary. I don't have a you know a huge general audience, but I'm actually now using tra- crowdsourcing to get it in theaters. Oh, that's an interesting concept. That's the first yeah. time I've heard that. Yeah, um, so that's what I'm doing now. So I have screenings in, you know, in various cities right now in New York, DC, the DC area, El Paso, and in the Baltimore area. And I'm using crowdsourcing to have screenings there. So if enough people buy advance tickets, I have a screening. Um, if there is not enough interest, then I don't. So that's how I'm using crowdsourcing to try to, um, you know, recoup my money and to get an audience to see my film and to um, have screenings. So, the, yeah. uh, you want to plug a website where they could go buy the ticket or find out more information about that? Yeah, uh, brownbabiesfilm.com. And you can see where it is screening now. And if you wanted to bring the film to your to a theater in your um, area, it's it's very it's very easy to do so. And people who host screenings, they get a, a portion of the box office as well. So it's a way to um, get demand, get people to get the film to people who want to see it. Great, uh, Ryan. I'm sorry. Wait, Ryan. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Stephen. Right. Regina, um, your phenomena does not sound uh, completely different than what Barack Obama uh, instituted with his first campaign where he relied heavily on small donations and well, $2 here, $5 here, $50 here. Do you think that this is indicative of a paradigm shift within the United States or do you think that we as a country are yearning are for something different than something that's mass-produced or something that's uh, supported by a major corporation? What does it say about society as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a definitely a place, a place for it because, yeah, you're going to have your big studio films and um, and whatnot, but for... It's it's a great way for somebody like myself and other um, filmmakers to get get their theaters, you know, in screens um, to people who want to see it. And the fact is, if there's not enough interest, it won't happen. If there is interest, it will happen. So, I mean, I do think, you know, it's a you, you vote by buying a ticket, and it's not like oh you have to you know Batman is coming to a theater and you know every theater in the country. It's like okay yeah I'd like to see this film. Can you can you bring it to this theater? It's almost it's like net Netflix, but you know having it at, at a theater as opposed to in your you know your living room. Wow, and, and Ryan, do you think that? Thank you, Regina. That was a very eloquent response, but. Ryan, do you think that this is indicative of some type of uh, change or some type of response to the the mass-produced, cookie-cutter type of environment that exists somewhat in the the United States now where every town has a Walmart or every suburb has a Panera Bread or it's some type of uniformity? Do you think this is some form of backlash to that, to where there's a desire for independent projects? I think there's always been a desire for independent projects, and you know, because the more money you, the more money something costs, the more people have to buy it, right? To, to make it to make it a profitable or, or, or a responsible business decision. So that's why you get the, the Spider-Mans and the Batmans, and you know, everybody loves those movies. I mean, at least I do. You know, I, I've seen every Marvel movie you ever made, right? <laughs> <laughs> but then you also go see the, the smaller movies too. If 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 you're aware of them and they pique your interest, you'll go see them. So I I think that stories, as long as there's a camera and a person has an idea, there'll always be a smaller movie. I think what the internet has done has it it has allowed content makers to have a platform to showcase 
the works they create. And so they can, control, like uh, they can right. control the distribution as well as the production of their image. So, so this equalizer is also has also been seen in, in popular music. Uh, I know there are several musical projects that you go directly to the consumer and bypass the the, the major corporations, and, and it seems to be a trend. And, and what I'm trying to figure out is if you guys think this this trend is indicative to a larger movement within society. Uh, yeah, we yeah, I don't, think it's a, I don't necessarily think it's an equalizer. Yes. I, I don't necessarily think it's an equalizer. Just uh-huh. because a person has the opportunity to create and distribute, uh-huh. in theory it's equal, right? But when it comes into practice and function, it's not necessarily equal because Filmmaker Independent X on the corner can shoot a movie, can put it on the Internet, everybody can see it, right? And if enough people like it, it'll be successful. Like Shata's is an example of that. Shata's was a fairly successful movie. Even She's Gotta Have It was a fairly successful movie based on even what we just heard, right? But the the mass success and appeal on a global-ish, on a global level that a Batman will have or a Titanic will have or a... You know, or, or those type of movies, or, or a Star Trek, or a Star Wars will have the independent. The independent producer. It's very rare that that'll happen. Even with the success of my big fat Greek wedding, it still isn't a Batman type of success or appeal. Because right. most independent but, filmmakers make movies that appeal to them and their friends. Which, which goes to my point earlier that if it, if the project gets in tune with the, the commonality between all of us as humans, I think it resonates with us all. And quite frankly, if, if over a million people can tune into a, a YouTube video of a cat playing a fiddle, I'm quite sure if there's a feature film that speaks to the commonality of human existence, I'm sure there's an audience for that. So... I would maintain. Yeah, yeah no, no I, have, I definitely think it is. Yeah. The, the 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 difficult part is the language barrier. So that's the one thing independents don't have the access to is the the dubbing. So one of the reasons why I'm doing the what I found through doing this electronic dance documentary called The Drop is I mm-hmm. wonder, I've always tried to figure out why EDM is so popular around the globe. What mm-hmm. makes essentially a disco beat with a, a, a hip-hop bass track and and some extra bells and whistles, so appealing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there is no lyrics. There are no lyrics. Mm-hmm. So what happens is the Asian kid, the white kid, the black kid, the old, the old man, the young girl, everybody is just vibing off of the beat and the feeling and the experience. Mm-hmm. So to a certain degree... Language creates barriers because people don't understand what you're saying. Right, it can, yes. So, so that's what yeah. happens a lot with independent films are independent filmmakers don't have the resources to dub their film okay. in every language where you can show yeah. your film. So, Regina, what 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 is the common thread in your project that speaks to human existence? Well, I mean, I think, you you know, when you have, everybody wants to belong. I think that's the common thread. And when you have people who don't feel like they belong, they don't have a country, they don't have a race, they don't have parents, and that need to belong. And I think that that's sort of, that's a universal uh, need and desire. Let me go back to Ryan for a second, and I know um, Regina addressed this earlier, um, but I was wondering about, and I think he, he alluded to it when he was talking about the film festival, but the challenges of getting your film um, distributed, if you mm-hmm. would address that. So the challenges of getting my film distributed, quite honestly, after my first film, I didn't have any challenges with it. 
Wow. Oh, wow. I haven't had after blood of a champion. Congratulations. That, that, sounds real, that sounds real arrogant, right? But I'm just And I need you to. It sounds real arrogant, but after the first film, Blood of a Champion, I haven't had any problems on getting my film distributed. Part of the reason Jesus. is because I learned I learned so a valuable lesson more with money. that film. Huh? Okay, so you don't need any more money. Well, distribute. Well, no, I always need money for production, <laughs> right? So distribution and production are different. So okay. I always need financing for projects, right? But distribution, I've never had an issue with that because one, I establish good relationships with distributors, right? And the other is, I found out what they like and how they sell their movies. Right. Oh. So when I so the it, a light bulb went off on me went off in my head one day when I was selling Blood of a Champion. So I'm like, you know, we shot this we shot this film, we shot the project on thirty five millimeter, everything looks great, the colors this, the colors that and the executive at Cold Black Entertainment said, Listen, nobody cares how good your film looks because when Walmart Target, Best Buy, Blockbuster buys these movies, mm-hmm. they don't watch them. So right. you need to focus on who's in your box art, who's going to sell your movie, what do your fans want to see when they walk down an aisle that will make them pick it up. Ryan, now was that the same way, case with your documentaries? With my documentary, oddly enough, it just so ha- which the uh, the BMF documentary. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with my BMF documentary, I promised myself cause my my very first two projects that I did were documentaries, mm-hmm. but they never got released. One was about uh, it was called the the um, oh, shit. it was called the Hoop Family. It was called the Hoop Family. It was about essentially. A pro-am team in Charlotte, North Carolina, that had players that were great pro, that were great college players, but not good enough to make it to the NBA. And then I did a second one called The Diary of a Player, um, which was about, which was funded by Players University Clothing Line. But why I'm why I'm giving you that history is because both of those documentaries failed for various reasons, and I said I would never do another one again. So when I look to do a documentary the next time, I need to make sure that it had an audience fan base in place. Yes. That a distributor can easily identify and recognize. So the BMS story came to, came across my desk. So I said, "Cool, I can sell this project here." So we did the project, and I knew I could sell it. So I did it. You know what? And I liked it. I mean, I liked the content. I liked the idea. I liked the concept. So you know, beyond that part, I liked it, and I knew I could sell it. I if I ever make another documentary again, I totally would do this would do this differently because you're absolutely right. You have to know. I should have known before or during when I was making this um, who I was going to sell it to. Now, like I said, I do this because it was a labor of love, and you know I I believe in my soul that this is what I was supposed to do. But if I did it again and did it, you know, like you should do for business reasons as well, I would do it differently. But it's interesting though when. I did not get a distribution deal, and I got a couple of contract offers, and they were just, when I read them, I didn't even have to show them to a lawyer. I knew enough to say this was horrible. It, it reminded you of, like, the stories that you hear of people back in the 50s who, like, made all these millions, sold millions and millions of records and had no money. And it's funny, yeah. I talked to other fellow filmmakers, and they were like, oh, my God, these deals that, you know, distributors were offering documentary filmmakers were just atrocious. You would just never, you you would never be able to recover your costs, let alone make any money. And that ended up doing being a distributor. It's so hard to make money on a documentary. Yeah. It's impossible. Like the check, the advance checks I would get on a feature versus a doc, like even even an average subpar feature still gets a deal and an advance check quicker than a documentary. Yeah. Like, I've, like so I've, had film, I've had films at the ABFF, but I've never won a competition. And you've won a competition. Yeah. So, so how do you like, determine so in, your so in theory, your, docu- your documentary is better than my movies. 
So but how do you determine what your potential audience should be, and how do you make a profitable document? document? Well, like, based off of her story alone, with just a little bit I know about it, I would take your documentary to the military channel, to the history channel, to various TV networks, and piece deals and piece money together from different networks and license out the content directly. I would do Black History Month with TV One, Black History Month with BET. Piece those little things together, and then, you know, you'll make your money back eventually. Documentaries is a long-term play. It's not a short-term deal. So you would do it on the tail end because she did her project from passion. Then you would market her passion to potential, I guess, target populations that would be interested in that subject matter. So it's possible to blend your passion and still be profitable. It is, but you just have to make you have to make it out of responsible budget number. So, like that's another example. So when I did um, the third film jury of our peers, I already knew what the distribution company would give me an advance for. So mm-hmm. my job was to make the film for less than that advance if I knew I was going to make some money on the deal. Not every filmmaker's in that position coming out. So I, I'm encouraged by the fact that that you know I'm I'm an idealistic romantic type of guy. So I, I I'm attracted to something when someone said I was led to it, or I felt this was my mission, or I felt you know that this is something that I had to do. But I also understand that it's still possible to be prosperous and be purposeful at the same time. So I, from what I from what I hear from you is that even if you did something in an altruistic manner, you can still market it to a, a particular target population and and gain some type of prosperity from that. Is that correct? Correct. But you can only be I only believe in being altruistic if your film is financed through a donation, right? Okay. Not a loan or an investment. If you finance your finance. film yourself. Uh-huh. And you donate your own money to yourself to this idea, then you can mm-hmm. make the most altruistic project, altruistic vision that you have on the planet. But if you invest in yourself with your own money, or you invest, or somebody else invests in your film, then you have a responsibility to figure out a way to, make it to return that money to that person. Now, whether it does or not, you never know. Yeah. But you at least have to do everything you can to make that happen. So, okay, Tara, I think you were going to say something. I'm sorry. If yeah. I so, for the listener who who's contemplating on being a filmmaker or thinking about a film project that they would want to do, um, what advice would you give them? Um, we could start with Regina. Well. I would definitely have a, a business plan and a more of an approach, as Ryan um, mentioned. If I ever did this again, I would totally do it that way. This, I, I have no regrets with Brown Babies because I do believe it was in the stars for me to do this, and I believe in somehow, some way, that this will come back to me. Maybe not in not in this particular project, but you know. I, 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 that's just my belief. This was my choice. It was my money, and I'm fine with that. But absolutely, if this were more of a business um, proposition, I absolutely would feel a complete obligation to repay anyone who invested in. And if you're going to do this for a living, which you know this was a passion project for me. I work in TV news, so I have a nine to five job. Um, you know, it's different. But I could not be a filmmaker. And and live doing what I'm doing right now. So um, I would have to take a very different approach. Have a project that I know has an audience, a built-in audience, and proceed um, in a more um, practical manner. This was a project from the heart, so it's a little different. Um, I wouldn't recommend somebody doing what I did. Um, as a career, I would this like I said, this was very, um, it was a passion project, and I have no regrets. Before we move to Ryan, are are you working on any other projects, or do you have uh, any other stories that you would like to tell? 
um, to making a documentary? Not at this time. I I do think Brown Babies would make a good, a very good feature film, um, in a, in a narrative form. Um, but again, I would have to look at it in a very different um manner, and I'm not in the position to do that right now. And Ryan, what advice would you give a new filmmaker? As I would say, as a first-time filmmaker or anybody interested in being filmmaking, the first thing you have to do is get your business in order. All right, so get you make sure you got an accountant and an attorney on your team, and then from there you can be as creative as you want to be. Because, like, that's the thing, and, and, you know, I've learned this the hard way, is when you come out the door, you're focusing on the art of it all and the passion of it all and the love of it all, but you're the only person that's focusing on that. Everybody else you talk to either wants to be entertained or wants to make money off of the vision or love or the passion that you have. So in order for you to be able to focus on the love and the passion and the vision, you need to have somebody else that focuses on the business side of what your passion and vision is. It sounds so like that up with Dina, you could to make some type of partnership there. <laughs> right. You need to have that you need to have that part you need to have that part in place. Get that in place and then focus on what you love and do it. Hello? Yeah, I'm still here, but you, it, you sound a little uh, distorted. So I think you have another question. No, I just, my final question is when should should we anticipate the, the Ryan and Regina collaborative process? Because it seems like she has the heart and you have the head. So. I'm looking forward to some type of collaborative project. I mean, project I mean from she, she has she has a heart in her head too. She she put her heart in her head in that project. But I would definitely I would help you out, seeing if I could help you get some distribution for it. Because I mean, the story sounds interesting to me, and I think you know some people would like to see it, put it in front of a few people, and then we'll go from there. Because you know the thing is, if it's not making any money now. Even if you get fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand, it's better than zero. Absolutely, right. That's my that's my approach on it all. Because you know, the last thing you want to be is that is that stubborn filmmaker holding out for that million dollar deal. No. <laughs> <All right. laughs> no. But you know, but like I, I, I mean, what Ryan says has absolutely resonated true with me. If I. Um, if I ever make another movie again, and who knows, maybe I will, maybe I won't, but I would definitely go in with a different approach. But, you know, sometimes you do things for different reasons, and I was at a place in my life where I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to tell something. I, I, I wanted to be proud of something, and I'm definitely proud of what I've done. And, and that's a great ending to the show. I want to thank both of you guys for joining us on In My Opinion. And also Stephen Reese for uh, co-hosting tonight. Um, for the audience, feel free to, um, uh, if you missed any of the show, you can um, listen on demand at um, Blog Talk Radio, in my opinion, TV. Again, I want to thank you guys for joining us. Thanks, Ryan thank and you. Regina. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. Uh, Have a great night, everyone. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.